I'm George Lavender, and you're listening to Making Contact. Okay, what color is Los Angeles water today? It's a little yellow, I'm told it comes from the rust in the pipes around here. Apparently, nothing to worry about. Can you trust the water you're drinking? This episode is all about what happens when the answer to that question is no. We begin in West Virginia. Back in January 2014, about 10,000 gallons of crude MCHM, that's 4-methylcyclohexane methanol, spilled into the Elk River near Charleston, contaminating the main water supply for 300,000 local residents. Among those affected by the spill was reporter Laura Allen. She brings us the story of the Elk River chemical spill, a story that begins with a phone call. DAP still line, how may I help you? Yeah, this is Bob Reynolds, Free Ministries. Uh, just calling to uh, let you know that we've got a, a leaky tank. Okay. Everyone in my town knows where they were on January 9th, 2014, the day this phone call was made. Me, I was walking home, and I realized I was breathing hard. The air smelled worse than usual. Later, people said it smelled like licorice. It was sweet, and it hung in the air like a heavy, wet blanket. By the time I got home, my throat was burning, and I felt lightheaded, and I noticed that Miles, my golden retriever, was also moving kind of slowly. I checked Twitter and learned I couldn't touch my tap water. West Virginia's governor declared a state of emergency Thursday. Do not drink it, do not cook with it, uh, do not wash clothes in it, do not take a bath in it. The governor enlisting the National Guard and FEMA to bring in water and supplies. Just about a mile north of the state's largest water treatment plant. The material, a foaming agent used to clean coal, began leaking from a 48,000-gallon storage tank at Freedom Industries, a chemical... Later, I learned that people said they smelled something strange starting at 7.30 that morning, and the phone call didn't happen until 5 past 12. It was 6 o'clock before the governor spoke. And by that time, many of us had used the water all day long and had no idea something was wrong. The day, the actual day of the crisis, I had been cleaning for someone and had had my hands in water all day long. Angela Walker cleans houses for a living. She's tall with curly red hair and a can-do attitude. We met right before the crisis when she started cleaning my house a couple of times a month. And then when I get home at 6 p.m., my husband and my teenage daughter, they had heard about it and I hadn't heard about it. In my hands, I knew they had, they were red and dry and I just thought maybe uh, one of the cleaners was a reaction or, or something. So it was more than just like regular winter red dry. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was, um, they, they had already, and this was before I knew about it. So it's not me exaggerating. It's not something that, you know, like I know we did have some mass hysteria. <laughs> because um, you think the worst, but my hands really were a mess. The, your first reaction is you want to go to the sink and wash them. And I go to do that, and then my family and I, we just kind of look at each other like, what do we do? And so my husband gets a can of Sprite out of the fridge and rinses my hands off with Sprite and soap. By the time Angela was washing her hands in soda, people were scrambling to get bottled water. 
Crowds filled stores in West Virginia Thursday night, stocking up on everything from water to ice. Demand for the items so high, shelves were wiped clean. Everybody's wanting water. There is no water, and uh, that, that, that brings concern. I got a buggy full of ice up here, so it'll turn into water, but I mean, you, know, you can't live without water. Here I am washing my hands in Sprite, and then I look over at my um, oven, and I was boiling a thing of water to make my kiddos hot dogs for dinner. And I'm like, wait a second, I can't give them that water. We can't eat those hot dogs. So there goes dinner. Angela, her kids and husband left the area to stay with family in Cincinnati. But when they got back to Charleston, life just wasn't the same. They had trouble going back to work. So we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what was going on. Nobody had any answers. The news couldn't tell us when water was coming back. I already knew clients were canceling left and right. So I already had a week of no work. She couldn't even touch the water. In fact, she was scared to. At that point, we knew nothing. I couldn't even put my hands in it. Um, Couldn't wash your dishes for you. Laundry couldn't be done. Um, I mean, I guess I could have dusted tables, but people don't want to pay me 100 bucks for an hour's worth of dusting. They want the normal cleaning done. Angela had no steady work for about a month after the crisis. Her husband lost work, too. He's a self-employed housing contractor, and clients told him that he couldn't even use a tool to mix paint and water together in their homes. They were that scared of it. They didn't want it anywhere near their houses. And the worst part about it was they didn't know if they would ever trust the water again. Bottom line is that the family lost a lot of cash, and catching up was tough. But then when the water thing happened unexpectedly, it was just like straight downhill. And now I have found myself... Um, in line for food stamps. Um, My two oldest got clothing vouchers this year for school clothes, which I'm completely thankful for. But this time last year, we bought clothes for other people. It's just, it's totally shifted a lot. Um, You know, each month it gets a little better. Um, But it's August, and we're talking about January. We're talking about nine months ago. Yeah. So it's taking you that long to start to see the light. Do you, are you seeing a light at the end of the tunnel now, would you say, or um, kind of? I feel like I'm not smothering. <laughs> March 2015, seven months since Angela told me she's not smothering, and 14 months after the water crisis. She stopped by the house, and we're in the kitchen making tea to take to the front porch. It's one of those days when the weather's starting to break. You know how it is in early spring. Winter hasn't quite let go yet, but you see and feel that it's warmer. Angela's economic situation is the same way. It's been slowly improving. It's getting better. Spring really is coming, and it feels good. But we wonder if we're really safe. You know, I've lived here ever since I was born, and we live in the Chemical Valley, so just it redefines the word safe, I guess. I can't imagine that it was ever technically safe-safe. Um, as far as like drinking a bottle of purified water, but we just never thought about it before. Now I think about it, honestly, probably at least every other time I turn on a tap. Do I use the water? Yeah. Um, Catch myself brewing tea with it, making my coffee with it. Um, We just brewed our tea with it. Yes, we did, but it's tasty. I'll be honest, like, I thought for a while, maybe I do need to move somewhere cleaner and healthier, and it made you made me kind of think of that stuff in a different way, but honestly, do I think it could happen again tomorrow? Yeah, I do, because I don't think much has changed, even legally. So, I don't know. 
So do you feel safe here? Do you feel safe living in Charleston? I do, but I feel safe. But I can't say that I'd be shocked if we had a water issue again in a week. That's just honest. More than a year after the crisis, sometimes I still smell the chemical. I was walking with one of my coworkers on a lunch break downtown, and he looked at me and said, Do you smell it? Yeah, I told him. Last year when the crisis ended, whatever that really means, we had to flush our pipes to get the chemical out of our water lines. Things like washers and hot water tanks could still pass the chemical into clothing and onto skin in the shower. The entire water system of not just the city of Charleston, but of nine counties, had to be cleared of the chemical. Here's the thing. About a third of our water doesn't even make it through the system because it's old. Water leaks out of the pipes and into the ground, so when road crews are out filling potholes or digging down to repair things like gas mains and sewer lines, you still smell it. Heavy, sweet licorice. MCHM. My friends and I talk about this all the time. I'd say at least once a week the chemical spill comes up and we compare notes like, did you smell the chemical here? Did you smell the chemical here? Is it real? Are we just overly sensitive after last year? It feels like things are back to normal, but are they? I think we'll live with those questions for a very long time. I know I will. For Making Contact, I'm Laura Allen in Charleston, West Virginia. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact. For more information about this or any of our programs, go to radioproject.org. You can also like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Up next, we go to the Texas-Mexico border, where a special investigation by the Texas Tribune has found how a lack of reliable drinking water has had a ripple effect on local communities. We were, we were asleep. It was early in the morning. My wife got a call from, uh, from my little girl's school, La Union, and they told her to should go, we should go pick up our little girls because there was no restroom. They were taking them all the way to, I think it was a high, new high school. They were loading up students and they were taking them there for the restroom so they can use the restroom. That's coming up. Stay tuned to Making Contact. that kind of really got um, seared in our memories was in um, Las Pampas, the Colonia outside of Presidio. Uh, This is a community of just a handful of families where there's no running water access at all. Um, And so people actually have to go into Presidio, which is several miles away. It's a small sort of uh, city on the border. They have to drive to Presidio um, to get water. 90,000 people living along the Texas-Mexico border are living without running water. In Presidio, there's actually a small kind of parking lot where the people who live in Las Pampas are supposed to go and fill up their water tanks. Nina Satija was the environment reporter for the Texas Tribune and one of the authors of Undrinkable. Undrinkable is a five-part series and it's a look at this problem on the Texas-Mexico border where many folks living there don't have access to clean drinking water or they don't have reliable access to clean drinking water. And so um, we set out to work on Undrinkable to understand that problem better, understand the extent of that problem. 
Along with Alexa Yura, Satija travelled the length of the border from El Paso to the Rio Grande Valley and spoke with residents about the problems they were facing with their water. That's how they met Brenda Pena. So we met Brenda Pena at, at one of these uh, water filling stations, which are really everywhere along the Texas-Mexico border. It's pretty amazing. Every few blocks or every few miles at least, you will see one of these filling stations. It's just basically, it's usually like in a parking lot and uh, people can come up and they can take their sort of five gallon water tanks or water bottles and fill them up at these filling stations. That particular day, there was a lot of business at these water filling stations because there was actually a water outage. Um, no, we just turned on the faucet and there was no water. And so did it make like a squeaky noise or something or what happened when you turned on the faucet? Uh, it was just, I guess, what was left on the lines, that's it. And we had, we didn't receive any notice. Oh, you just don't have any water? Yeah, okay. like all the whole neighborhood where we live, up to right here, I think, like a couple of miles. As Satija explains, even when there is water in the pipes, it's not always safe to drink. So there's a variety of things um, in the water in communities along the Texas-Mexico border that could make it undrinkable. Um, for instance, in Rio Bravo and El Ceniso, two communities near Laredo that we visited, um, they're pulling directly from the Rio Grande. Um, and the Rio Grande is severely contaminated, especially with raw sewage that's dumped from uh, Nuevo Laredo. So in Rio Bravo and El Ceniso, the issue that you have in the drinking water could be bacteria like E. coli, which could be very dangerous. Um, if you drink water or eat food that's infected with E. coli, um, you would probably get sick immediately. It would be sort of like food poisoning. But for the elderly and young children or people whose health is more vulnerable, E. coli could prove fatal. Now, obviously, you know, E. coli in drinking water or E. coli in your water source doesn't mean you're going to get sick if it gets removed properly during the water treatment process. But that's what wasn't happening in Rio Bravo and El Ceniso because there were problems with the water treatment plant. The problems varied from community to community. So in Vinton, the issue was arsenic in the water. Um, the groundwater was naturally contaminated with arsenic, and that's the water source that most people were getting their drinking water from. And there was really no central water treatment system in Vinton. So folks were really just pulling their water straight from the ground, uh, not doing a lot of treatment. So they had an issue of arsenic and they had a few other contamination issues as well. And in Rio Grande, Satija says the problem was actually the result of attempts to clean the water. Basically, when you're treating water in a water treatment plant, you add things like chlorine and, and, and other types of disinfecting chemicals. Sometimes too much of that disinfectant byproduct ends up getting left in the drinking water product, um, and that can cause problems as well. In some of the places Satija visited, the quality of the water would be bad enough that local authorities would have to issue boil notices as regularly as once a month. A boil water notice is essentially a notice to the public that says, your water is not safe to drink unless you boil it. Uh, so don't cook with that water, uh, don't brush your teeth with that water, certainly don't drink that water. Um, and you know, uh, Usually it's okay to shower, but in Rio Bravo and El Ceniso, we encountered people whose kids had gotten sick because, you know, little kids, they'll take a bath and they might drink some of the water by accident and, and things like that. And those regular boil notices had a longer term effect on public confidence. People would tell us they're just not ever going to trust their water. What happens when you have boil notices in any community, like I said, it, it gives you a sense of we're not as far ahead of the game as we thought we were. Then mayor of Rio Grande City, Ruben Villarreal. Uh, it, it almost causes you to think that you've taken a step back and second, instead of taking a step forward. 
you know, you get a boil water notice one day, it says your water is not safe to drink unless you boil it. Two days later, you get another notice, it comes up on the radio or the TV saying we've lifted the boil water notice, it's now safe to drink. A month later, you're back on a boil water notice again, you know, folks start to get pretty frustrated and, and they figure, you know, it doesn't seem like this water is safe to drink ever. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to start buying my water, I'm going to start buying bottled water or go to these water filling stations. The border region is an incredibly diverse place. So teacher says they found a lot of different issues affecting communities along the border. But she says they did share at least one thing in common, marginalization. Nobody's paying attention to these types of problems on the U.S.-Mexico border. I had a conversation with Congressman Henry Cuellar. Um, he represents uh, a big portion of the Texas-Mexico border. He's a Texas congressman, uh, former state legislator. Uh, this is a very, very near and dear issue for him. And he told me something interesting. He said that the lawmakers used to have a compassionate view of the border. In the 1990s, when the North American Free Trade Agreement was signed, there was a sense of this is an area that's in crisis, environmental crisis, humanitarian crisis, a poverty crisis. You know, we need to provide funding for these people. We need to grow businesses. We need to grow the economy. And now it's all about border security. There's, you know, all of these other problems have been left behind. And you do get that sense in these border communities that a lot of people have just given up. So they'll have issues with clean drinking water or whatever other problem. And, um, you know, they've lost hope that anything is going to get better. That's really the most common thread that we saw. The five-part Texas Tribune series, Undrinkable, is available online. Just go to texastribune.org forward slash undrinkable. You'll also find photos and maps of the areas along the border Nina Satija and Alexa Yura visited in their reporting. For our final water story, we go to the Salinas Valley in California. Here, in the middle of fields, fruits and vegetables, is San Gerardo. This decades-old community was established by farm workers involved in the UFW strikes of the 1970s. But by the 1990s, the community was dealing with another kind of threat, this time to its water. With funding from the University of California at Berkeley, Rachel Gottfried and Jing Niu have been collecting oral histories from communities in water crisis. Together, they bring us this story. Yeah, so this is the backyard of the home uh, here in San Gerardo where we live since 79. All my brothers and sisters, we were 11 in the family. And it's a four bedroom house, two baths. It has a living room, a dining room, a kitchen. Farm worker Horacio Amesquita has lived in the community of San Gerardo for the past 40 years. He and his family helped build this cooperative housing development. When we got in here in San Gerardo, there was no yards, there was no fences. It was just the, the barracks that were left by the Bracero program that was here in, in 1963. Back then in America's agricultural heartland, those Braceros, migrant farm workers, were living a very unstable existence. The purpose of the co-op is to provide housing for farm workers, low-income families that don't have the means to buy a house where they can live without fear of somebody kicking them out. That fear which Horacio speaks of is not unfounded, given the history of his community. This is the story of Chicano working families and their struggle for low-cost housing. 
a struggle they waged alone against the big companies and the laws of the rich. This is a clip from 38 Families, a 1974 film that retells the creation of the San Gerardo housing community. It all started in La Posada, one of the labor camps controlled by the big corporations. In this case, pick and pack, which is part of the DuPont Empire. Like many agricultural labor camps, workers were charged hefty rents to live in substandard trailers. However, in the 1970s, farm workers were organizing themselves and unionizing. After the workers in the town of Salinas formed a union, the company tried to break them by having them evicted. But with no other affordable housing available, the farm workers and their families had nowhere to go. When the people say they won't leave La Posada until new houses are built, the company has a judge give the final eviction notice. The community calls on other workers and students for support. The struggle goes on. Police raided the camp and made arrests. Now homeless, the community stuck together. They found a former Japanese internment camp on the outskirts of town that had been abandoned by Braceros five years earlier. It was called Camp McCullen. In this meeting, the people decided to defend their rights and pitch their tents in front of the camp until they got their houses. All of us are together. The 38 families are united. We know that we will win. And the only way poor men can win is to fight. Residents won that fight for Camp McCullen back in 1972 and spent the next five years retrofitting it into one of the first cooperatively owned housing developments specifically for farm workers, San Gerardo. Horacio's family moved in in 1982 and has been living there ever since. So this sidewalk, we made it with the community and the little park, the kids park. We, everybody got together, we made the sidewalks, we put some grass. The residents of San Gerardo have made the community their own. Many yards are filled with fava beans, lemon trees, and Nopales cactus gardens. We live happy here. The only thing that bothered the community when the water started getting polluted, that's when troubles really started. Contaminated water, commonly linked to high pesticide use and agricultural runoff. So by 1990, the health department found out there was a contaminated well. The first one, by 93, they found the second well to be contaminated. And by 2001, the third well was contaminated. The combination of trichloropropane and nitrates was making the people sick. So they were getting rashes, red eyes, dark pink spots on their skin, the hair was falling down. Trichloropropane is a cancer-causing compound, and nitrates, which have been linked to thyroid and cognitive problems, can be deadly to infants under six months old. Their most common use is in fertilizers. Agriculture is here in Salinas, uh, in the Salinas Valley and in California, is not only profiting off of farm workers and agricultural workers, but it's forcing these communities to live in their pollution waste. Daisy Gonzalez is Central Coast Program Assistant for the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water, or EJCW. I was born and raised in the Salinas Valley. This is the middle school that I went to. As you can see, a fence divides all the agricultural fields from the school. I grew up 
seeing this as normal, but this is not normal and this is not okay. Um, communities should not have to live surrounded by ag fields, should not have to deal with the exposure to pesticides and the contamination of water. In October 2001, the County Health Department acknowledged the problem and told the residents to drink bottled water. The local water company was ordered by a court to provide it, but Horacio says they didn't provide enough. Sometimes they give us 25 gallons per week, sometimes 15 gallons per week. It was never enough. We, sometimes we have to go buy a town because we were not allowed to drink or cook. The county made up the difference and supplied bottled water for several years. And eventually, in 2010, a $6 million grant through the state water board paid for the drilling of a new well. To find a nitrate-free location, the well had to be drilled two miles away from the community and pumped uphill at additional expense. The maintenance and the operations is very costly. People are paying over $100 every month. And before, because the water was under the property of San Gerardo, they only paid $20. And for the people that, that receive just Social Security, that's a lot of money that they have to put in just for water. Sometimes it's 15%, 20% of their income. That high cost of water has discouraged San Gerardo residents from gardening. It's also taken a psychological toll on the community's spirit of self-reliance. The community doesn't have money to fix the drinking water, which the agriculture industry polluted. So we have to rely on grants. And if we don't get grants, the pollution is going to be there. Horacio says he considers San Gerardo lucky to have received any funding. A 2013 study of 90 shallow wells in the region found almost a third contained levels of nitrates above the drinking water standard. There are some communities that already have 26 years waiting for someone to clean their systems. Again, Daisy Gonzalez with EJCW. These communities come from, are migrant communities that come from Mexico, so they, they see their place here in the United States as a place of privilege where they have you know, a roof on their heads where they have a job. Um, so having issues with water is something that they kind of accept. And, and we're trying to challenge that and, and saying that that is not normal and that is not something that they should live with. A lot of these communities feel isolated. They, they think that they're an isolated case, um, where in reality, this issue is widespread. And I think uh, bringing these communities together um, can be very powerful. And we see that as an opportunity to really challenge the status quo. Vicente Lara also works with EJCW. They're trying to organize farm workers from throughout the region to advocate for themselves and access resources, like grants and loans that would allow them to regain control of their water quality. I think one of the things we get accused of is, you know, just blaming agriculture. And the reality is, you know, I don't think we necessarily are telling growers to pick up and get out of town because we both know folks who depend on this industry uh, for their sustainability, for their financial sustainability. We feed America, you know, we feed the U.S. So people depend on the produce and the vegetables and everything that, that, that we grow here. Um, and we just want to ensure that that is done in a way that is respecting uh, the earth. 
In 2014, Monterey County began a three-year rate increase to treat San Gerardo's water, forcing residents to pay even more of their often meager incomes. Still, Horacio stands by the decision to build a new water system. Even though it's too costly, I think it was the right thing to do. It's better to have clean water, and it's also better to have a good water system that we can prevent not polluting the aquifers. True to the spirit of self-determination that brought San Gerardo to life, he hopes that the community can regain control of the current water system someday. For Making Contact, I'm Rachel Gottfried. And I'm Jing Nu. To see some of the advocacy videos Rachel Gottfried and Jing Nu have produced with support from UC Berkeley's Stronach Prize, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you'll find all the information you need to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or however you listen to podcasts. Then join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Making Contact. The Making Contact team includes Quan Booth, Laura Flynn, Jasmine Lopez, Lisa Rudman, and Andrew Stelzer. I'm George Lavender. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.